All right. So I think, um, so I think basically you, the way we have it set up, which is pretty typical, if, if you have some familiarity with Zoom, there is a chat function uh, down at the bottom of the screen. And if, if you click on that chat, it will uh, open up a side box, at least that's what it's doing for me. And uh, if you have a question, you could type, uh, type a message down there at the bottom and, and hit enter on your computer. And then everyone should be able to see it, I believe. And, um, and I will be able to see it. And uh, we'll, we'll start here at 8.30 and go until 9.15. And I'll hang around if anybody has a question or two. Uh, and so tonight is, is kind of, a, let's, let's make a beginning and uh, pray the collect for, uh, for this week. So if you would join me, let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Gracious God, you gave your Son into the hands of sinful men who killed him. Forgive us when we reject your unfailing love, and grant us the fullness of your salvation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 All right. Again, it's nice to have you with us tonight. So uh, I'm going to make make a beginning. Here. If you have a Bible handy, you could grab it, and we'll be moving around a bit uh, in the scriptures. Or if you have an app that you like, um, I know English Standard Version ESV it has a, a website that you can access if you wanted to look on your screen. And um, we'll we'll definitely be doing a lot of scripture. Uh, in in the course of this study and so just as a beginning what will this course be uh, this course is how do we bring Christ to others that's one one thing but it's not simply a how to do it course it's not just a you know here's 10 steps and then you've got it you me to get one but it's also meant to be meditative uh, for you. And so it's, it's a bit of a hybrid sort of a course where in many ways you learn by example. And that's a sense of the art of witness. And the, the topic of the study is called protreptics. And it's really very simple. Basically, Protreptic is to turn someone towards a new way of living. And so it doesn't only deal with the intellect or the thought process, but it really gets to the heart and how one lives. And you go after the people's feelings. What do they feel? What do they yearn for? What are their desires? Those kinds of things. And so it's going to be a little bit of here's what protreptics is, but I'm going to do meditative studies with you where we actually get into the scriptures ourselves 
and we immerse ourselves in the scriptural narrative and we start pulling out the spiritual aspects of what's going on in the text. Uh, we put ourselves into it and it becomes sort of a, a, it's a living narrative that is, while it is rooted in history and the scriptures and with Jesus, it's also uh, about us. And so this, this aspect of witness will, will encompass that just a few things. So in, in Lutheran theology, we have a term called prolegomena, which is really first things, and it's putting first things first. And that's what I'm going to do primarily tonight, although we are going to get into a scriptural text, uh, given that there's time. And a few things to note, when you look at the culture around us, as we all know, the culture is uh, growing further and further away from uh, the church's viewpoints. It's um, definitely becoming more secular. And there's just a few things. For example, a study from the Pew Research Center in 2020, so it's very recent, forecasts that in the second half of the 21st century, Muslims will surpass Christians worldwide. Uh, it says Muslim growth will increase by 70% by 2060. And in America, the number of Muslims who leave Islam are offset by the numbers of those who enter Islam. So that's in America. But then if you look towards the Christian viewpoint or the Christian circles, a study from September 22nd of this year from the Arizona Christian University Cultural Center determined that 2% of millennials studied have a biblical worldview. 2%. It's, I mean, couldn't get much smaller, right? 19% of those studied believe that human life is sacred. Now, let me say that again. 19% of those millennials studied believe that human life is sacred. 28% studied believed the Bible to be the inerrant word of God. So that's sort of what the church is grappling with as we go forward. And then another study from January 24th of 2018, which was a Barna study, said 29% of Generation Z, so that would be the younger, the younger folks just below millennials, 29% of Generation Z cannot believe that a good God would allow suffering in the world. And 23% of Gen Z believe Christians are hypocrites. That's a Barna study. So, you know, as the church moves forward in um, life, Eucharist, mission, uh, these are the challenges that we continue to face increasingly. So what are we trying to do when you think about the art of witness we want to enable others to experience, know, and receive the love of Jesus, find forgiveness. We want to bring love and mercy into the neighborhood in which we live, into the lives of people who are thirsting for these things. And so part of our prolegomena, which will always be at the forefront of this course, is looking at faith, hope, and love. Those are three things that Paul talks about, faith, hope, and love, right? These three, the greatest of these is love. 
And so we look at those are the things that the Lord provides, faith, hope, and love. And then we look just below that at the Christian life, vices, and virtues. And our goal is to leave our vices behind and have holy virtues encompass our lives. We want to take hold of the virtues. We seek those as we seek the Lord. <clears throat> so what are some obstacles that we face in the church when we look to our neighborhood and our neighbors? We are often misunderstood. There are mixed messages. What the church really believes about sin, heaven, forgiveness, and who gets to go to heaven. Uh, we are always in the church dealing with abuses by church leaders in greater Christendom that are, you know, always all over the media. And then people outside the church often bear or carry feelings of judgment. And so these are obstacles that, that we often face when we look to our neighborhood and our neighbors and those outside the church. So when we think about witnessing the art of witness people often feel the need to answer all critical questions issues of sexuality issues related to evolution political stances marriage abortion um, these are important issues but these questions that are so often posed to the christian often reside in the intellectual level or the intellectualizing of the faith and so as a result Christians often try to use intellectual arguments to convince people why they should be Christians. So, you know, often when we talk to people outside the church, there are different things going on. Intellectually, they're thinking one set of things, but then in their hearts, they're often grappling with other things. So one of the things that I have often found when I'm talking to young people outside the church is they'll come to me and they'll try to put me in a corner and get me to answer these difficult intellectual questions. And they've already got their answer and they think they already know my answer and they're just waiting to affirm their, their unbelief. And so part of protreptics is saying that's an important question and somewhere down the line we need to address that but there's other things that we need to talk about first. And so what I would do then is get into protreptics, which is to get into a gospel narrative and put myself and the person into the text itself. And then we begin to explore what is really going on in the text itself and how does it relate to our deepest yearnings and our deepest feelings. And so, you know, you think about the intellectualizing of the faith, like what do you believe about evolution or what do you believe uh, about your political stance or whatever the case may be, that's one thing. But when you start going at the heart and deep yearnings, suddenly you're kind of working at something different. And I've, I've found by the grace of God some great success talking to young folks by getting into the gospel stories, the narratives, and just starting to say, what do you see in this? What do you, you know, 
the people around Jesus, what do you see? Do you see judgment or whatnot? And so we'll get into all of that stuff as we go along in this course. And so Protreptics leads us into the art of witness, the art of living. And I'm going to talk about this in more detail uh, through the course. So let's take a look at this then. Uh, Open up your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 8. And um, actually open it up first to Acts chapter 1. Um, there's two concepts that, that we see in the Bible in terms of mission and witness. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, we see, and by the way, if you have a pen and paper and you want to jot scripture verses down and go back and look at them later, you certainly can do that. In the Old Testament, mission and witness is primarily seen in what we call centripetal mission. So centripetal sort of draws into the center, right? And the temple, the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament was always that central place. The Holy City then, there was always a central place where people would look or go to find the Lord and his presence and goodness and blessing. And so that's centripetal mission. And there are passages throughout the scriptures that reiterate this kind of thing. Like Isaiah 52 verse 10 is one. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. And then Isaiah 62 two. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So talking about the Gentile nations around God's people, they will look and see the salvation of the Lord. It's all drawing in towards temple, towards Holy of Holies. And then Ezekiel 39, 21 And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. So you hear this sense of glory in the Old Testament, and it's located specifically, and all the nations draw in. And you see this in the Psalms. The psalmists often pray, Lord, bless us, you know, would you have Would you have the nations around us see us fall? That kind of thing. And so the psalmist's appeal is bless us that the nations will see and be glad. That kind of thing. So you have this sense of glory located. And then you have John's gospel. And in John's gospel, you have this beautiful passage in John 1.14, and this is all leading up to Acts. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So all of a sudden, with John's gospel comes 
rolling out and this location of glory and divine presence is now suddenly incarnate and embodied. And then the gospels break forth in that, in that way. And that leads us, of course, to everything that Jesus does. And, and so throughout the gospels, throughout the narratives, we see over and over again how the location of God's divine presence in the Son of God now comes into the lives of, of people, into the broken world, and brings relief and forgiveness and mercy and hope. And what this does then, and you see this at the end of Matthew's gospel with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, where it says, go ye therefore unto all nations, right? And so all of a sudden now, with Christ's ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection, now mission and witness all goes in a different direction, and it's called centrifugal mission. And so then you get to the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is over and over again a combination of the church's life around the altar and then going out to the world. And so mission suddenly centrifugal, it goes out. And so it goes bonk, bonk, bonk like that. And we see this. So if you look at Acts chapter one, verse eight, and this is preparing us for what I really want to talk about today. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 actually gives us the outline for the book of Acts, and then we see it unfold. So verse 8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what Luke is doing using the words of Jesus himself is he's establishing how the book of Acts unfolds then. So chapters one through seven of the book of Acts is witnessing to Jerusalem. And then chapters eight and nine is the church witnessing to Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 10 through 28 is the church witnessing to the ends of the earth. And so when we look at our lives in this, um, we'll watch it, we'll watch it uh, unfold in how we, how we live our faith as we live at the foot of the cross and then how, uh, how our Lord uh, uses us uh, as we love our neighbors and those around us. So with all of that, take a look at Acts chapter 8. And we're looking specifically at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So we're looking at Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. And let's just read through this. I'll, I'll read it, and you can listen or follow along, and then, and then we'll talk about it. And 
Acts 8, verse 26 and following. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, when we look at this particular text, part of protreptic discourse is we put ourselves into the text and we also recognize that if we're talking to someone about this text, this narrative, this story that is outside the church, they probably have different predispositions. They probably have different definitions than we do for love, truth, mercy, judgment. And if we know those kinds of things going in, it will be helpful. But when you look at this text, it's deeply spiritual. So it's not just simply of the mind and we roll through it quickly, but we actually begin to look deeply at what's going on within it. And one of the things that I love to do is to look at the text in Greek because it brings out so much. I mean, it's such a beautiful text. And so let's just walk through this and take a look at it. When we look at verse 26, for example, the angel of the Lord says to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, it's mentioned, I think, three times the notion of a road. And this idea of a road, the Greek word is hados. And 
it's not just simply road, but in the Old Testament, road is often like a path, a journey, um, a spiritual direction. And you can look at this on your own. Psalm 1 begins the entire Psalter by pointing out that there are two roads. And there's the way of life and then the way of, of destruction, the way of the, of, of the holy and the way of the, uh, of the wicked. And it, on one level, is leading us to see that Jesus is the, the one, the man, and, um, and he paves the road for us. But then, so like in Hebrew, there is this designation called halakhic literature, the halakha. And the halakha is symbolism that deals with such language as road, way, path, journey, feet, so walking, and then the eyes, light for the path. There's all this all these themes that sort of go together. And so when we look at a, a, a narrative like this, an account like this, it's just bubbling under the surface of this sort of notion that what kind of path are you on? And so as we look at this text ourselves, where do we find ourselves in this text? Perhaps you think back to uh, when you became a Lutheran or you were on the journey uh, towards baptism, or maybe you'll think about your days of catechesis and confirmation, or maybe you think of the times when you have talked to people that are outside of the church that have questions for you about your faith. And so the, Lord, the angel of the Lord is asking Philip to go down, go upon the road. Okay, and he's supposed to go to the south from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then it says something very interesting. This is a desert place. So if you think about this for just a second, now think about where in the Bible have you seen desert language? So the wandering people of Israel, right? They wandered in the desert. But then Jesus, after he's baptized, he goes off into the wilderness or the desert where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's, and who does he encounter in the desert? But the devil. So desert has a spiritual connotation that there's something about where he's going. And what's interesting about this this text is, it's in chapter 8. So in chapter chapters 8 and 9, mission and witness is to go to Judea and Samaria. Philip comes out of Samaria briefly to go tend to the Ethiopian. So what's happening is, I think, Luke is using the Ethiopian as a bridge to go from Judea and Samaria mission to Gentiles and nations. And the Ethiopian, as we'll see in this text, is in between. Because where's he coming from? He's coming from the temple. 
if you look at the text, he was he was at a, he he had been in Jerusalem, and he's going to Gaza. And the Ethiopian is a very important figure, and so he's going to hear the gospel. He had come a uh, verse. Let's see here, uh, verse twenty-seven. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So the Ethiopian may have been a Jewish proselyte that was going up for a feast. And he's returning and he's seated in his chariot and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And so when you look at this text, then what he's re he's reading and pondering. And the beauty of this text is the Greek word is anagonosko, which means he's, he's reading and contemplating things that are above the prefix to the word is he's thinking about things heavenly, but he doesn't understand it. And so you think about the church's mission and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so how does he join it? Well, this gets to the church's life in mission witness catechesis and the word for bind yourself to the chariot so to bind is the same word that jesus uses when he talks about marriage and he says uh it's actually um matthew chapter 19 let's see here matthew chapter 19 verse 5 where he says the the two will become one flesh. So there is this sense of you will be bound to one another, which is sort of like being glued to one another, fastened to one another, joined as one. So that is what's interesting about this. And, and this, this is so important in terms of the art of witness, because if if witnessing is just sort of an, an intellectual process where I feel like I just got to go over and tell this person the information they need to know, and then I've done my job and off I go. Well, that's not what you see here. Uh, what you see here is a sense of relationship where Philip is willing to join himself to the chariot. He's willing to join himself to the Ethiopian and journey. And that's what they do. So you see catechesis here. Uh, you could see evangelism and witness and mission here because we're not just um, using currency when we do when we do mission work. It's not just an exchange and then we've done done our thing, but it is actually loving, uh, being merciful, uh, being present, and just being truly human. And that's what you see, I think, in, this, in the use of this word and the connection of binding oneself to the chariot like that. And so then he asks the question, Philip runs to him, hears him reading Isaiah the prophet and says, do you understand what you're reading? And so again, 
the same word for reading where it's a heavenly reading. You're contemplating the things above. Do you know the things above? Do you understand the text and how it's bringing divine realities down to you? That kind of thing. And then how does the Ethiopian, how does the Ethiopian respond? But so honestly and truly, he says, how can I unless someone guides me? And so here again, I'm giving you a lot of technical language from the text, but it's, I think it's beautiful and really enhances what's going on in the text because the word guide comes from the word for road. So he's a, the Greek word is hadegas. I need a hadegas. I need a guide. I need someone who is willing to walk the journey with me. So if you think about the art of witness, it's not really anything different than just the life of mercy, which we learn at the altar. A life of mercy, a life of love, a life of kindness, uh, a life where Jesus walks with us. And so when you think of, so here's the thing, here's the protreptic for you. As you listen to this text, which you've probably heard many times throughout your life, this text speaks to the people outside the church in our neighborhoods, but it also speaks of you. Because to think that the Ethiopian needs a guide who is willing to walk with him and help him to understand the scriptures is the very life of the church around the altar. Because this is what Jesus does. Jesus is always there with us, even amidst our failure to fully understand or grasp the scriptures. Jesus has placed the pastoral ministry there around the altar to feed and nourish and guide us as we hear the absolution, we listen to the text, and then we're drawn to the altar. So it's all there. It's all just sort of swimming uh, in this text implied. And so he says, I need a guide. And so he invites Philip to come and sit with him. And then we hear the scripture, which is from the prophet Isaiah. And a beautiful text it is because it gets to the heart and soul of the church, right? The, it gets to the, the cross of our Savior. It gets to his passion. And so the Ethiopian doesn't understand it, but it's the very thing that he needs to ponder. But he, he needs a guide for that. And what we see then in verse 35 So the eunuch asks the question about whom does a prophet say this about himself or about someone else. And then in verse 35, it says, Philip opened his mouth and you see this in ancient literature. You see this in the scriptures, you see it in the gospels, like Jesus, when he sits down to preach the sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel, what's the first thing it says before he starts to preach and he opened his mouth and then out flows divine Oracle 
And so Philip looks a lot like Jesus at this point, and he begins to proclaim. And beginning with the scriptures, he begins to preach about Jesus. Yeah, and in Greek, he preaches the gospel that is, a, that is about Jesus. And then again, in verse 36, they're going along the road. So there's that language again. But now this time it reads a little differently in the Greek. They're going down the road and they're going down the road together. Ethiopian, the guide, Philip, amidst the preaching of Christ's passion. They're in a desert place. So you're in the world. The world's tough. It's full of trouble. There's a lot of evil around. They've left the holy city. They're going down the road into uncharted territory. They're heading out to the nations, towards the Gentiles. The gospel's being preached. Philip stays with him all the way. He's bound himself to the chariot. They're going down the road, and then all of a sudden, the Ethiopian says, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And one of the things I find remarkable about this is we don't know how long the journey is. And we also don't know all of the details of what Philip proclaimed and taught. But we get an indication to something because all of a sudden the Ethiopian knows about water and baptism. And now he wants to be baptized. So we see somebody who's grappling with the scriptures. He's a Gentile, Ethiopian. He's going back to his land. And now he wants this gift. And so they stop the chariot. They both get down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptizes him. And they come up from the water, and we hear the language in verse 39 that the Spirit of the Lord is, is there and takes Philip, uh, and the eunuch doesn't see him again. But then look at verse 39, and what? how does it read? Now, notice. Philip's gone. They came up out of the water. Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now, I would say there's more to that phrase than meets the eye. He didn't just go on his way or just go about his business, but he goes, He and this is how it literally reads in the Greek, he journeys on the road, rejoicing. What a beautiful text. So what you see in this text is a movement from bewilderment, looking at the scriptures, not getting it, to having a guide who preaches, teaches, binds himself, to now he's been baptized, and he's walking on the road 
But how's he walking on the road? Rejoicing. And so you see the move, the movement that the Lord provides by leading this, this Ethiopian to become a Christian and to rejoice. So whatever's going on in the world around him, he has great cause for joy and thankfulness. And this is what the Lord provides. And it connects. So Pastor Bruzek, when he does his Zoom, he's going to spend a lot of time teaching you about hope. And this is an ingredient to all of this, this rejoicing. You know, you have hope, which causes joy. And it's all centered around the charisma of the church and the gospel, the cross, the preaching of Jesus, baptism, which is a gift that Christ gave that accompanies that gospel, which leads us to journey together. And this is the art of witness. We have experienced it ourselves as we have journeyed on the road and we've had our guides that have led us and taught us and cared for us and bound themselves to us, leading us to baptism, leading us then down along the road rejoicing, which is a story about us, about you and me, and is the art of witness, which is an opportunity for the people around us to also hear the same thing as we live around the altar and to be recipients of the gospel ourselves. So let me just pause there. It looks like we're close to being out of time. Uh, Does anybody have any questions? Um, You can, um, you can type a message if you know how to do that. Um, So this, this text itself is a great example though of the church's life and it um it kind of is it's a nice beginning for us because then what we'll do is we'll start to get into some other gospel narratives then uh, we'll get into another one next week and i'll give you a little bit more about protreptics and one thing to keep in mind is i think maybe in conclusion when you think about history and you think about church history and and the church's life the old testament and maybe i can kind of provide a graphic next week that'll show this but the old testament draws in to the life of jesus to the cross so it's the old testament is pointing forward to jesus who is the embodied glory and then the new testament points back to that and um so the center of history is rooted in the life of Jesus and what that does is that always provides us provides all people with an opportunity to be made new um whereas the way a lot of people in our secular world look at history is they look at history in terms of evolution uh which just keeps going like this and um 
lots of times in a case like that, there's no turning back or beginning again. Okay, I see a question. Uh, what is the significance of the fact he is a court official and in charge of the queen's treasure? It makes me think of James and his discussion about having joy in trials, both the rich man and the poor man. Is this eunuch a rich man? That's a really good question. So this eunuch had a very important job overseeing the treasury of, of the queen of Ethiopia. So he probably, my understanding is he probably was well cared for. Um, so probably not a poor man. Uh, the fact that he's reading a scroll of Isaiah, uh, such a scroll, I think, would have been pricey and difficult to come by. So the fact that he has it makes one think that he's probably a person of means. Um, but of course, he's a servant to the queen, but a very important servant. And that being said, though, he was a eunuch. Um, but he also was, it seems, a, a proselyte to the Jewish faith. Um, so he had a lot ruminating uh, in his mind and heart, one could think. And it would be one of these perfect examples of how he is the precursor then to bring the gospel to Ethiopia and to the nations. So um, he, he may have had, a, whatever his situation may be, which I think was a pretty good one, he, um, he had a great opportunity, perhaps, perhaps even to share it with the queen, who knows? I don't know if, if someone in that position would have the freedom to do that, but that's a really good question. Thank you. Any, does anybody have any other questions or thoughts? on this text or anything that, that we've looked at? All right. If you do, feel free to email me and um, we'll, uh, I'll be glad. Oh, what is the significance of South? Okay, real good question. Uh, the significance of South, it could be like noon, that, that word could mean South or noon, but given the circumstances and the situation, uh, it may have just literally been going towards the south, um, just a geographic uh, term. But if, if you have questions, um, I can always stick around if, if you have some questions uh, for a little bit till 930 or so, or you can email me and I'd be happy to respond uh, that way or phone call, whatever works, uh, whatever works best. But we will continue to explore just exactly what protreptics is and some of the, the inner dynamics of protreptics and its history. I'll give you some of that. I'll give it to you in little bits because I'd like to uh, continue to go in with examples of uh, gospel narratives and to look at the vices and the virtues uh, that we see in the scriptures. So uh, with that, Let's go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer and uh, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thank you all very much. And Lord's peace be with you this night. I'll stick around for a little bit if anybody has any questions or comments or discussion. I have a question. So the road that they were on, as you were talking about earlier, is that was when you were talking about desert, was that not commonly used? It was like, why were they, why would they be traveling on a road not commonly used? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it, it seems that that area, I mean, the very fact that there was suddenly water um, suggests that there was, uh, it was, it was a good land. Um, but it perhaps was um, not, uh, if you looked at it just for what it was, um, maybe it was an area that just wasn't inhabited very much. But um, one of the things that I see so often as I, as I continue to uh, work in, in the Greek text is there's so much language that is spiritual and things that we would see in the English, we would just run over it, just blaze trails across it and not catch the sense. But, you know, truly, like these, these notions of road and journeying and path and light and eyes, all of that stuff is, I think, highly significant. I mean, you know, you think about in the Old Testament, Leah and Rachel, um, you know, Leah was said to have weak eyes. And so we would say, okay, so she had weak eyes. But if you look at the, 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 uh, the theme of Halakha in the, in the Old Testament, to have weak eyes would have something to do with a lack of faith or a lack of wisdom. And um, so there's always another layer at work in the scriptures that way. And um, so that's one, what I, when I look at some of this language, like, you know, you bring up desert over and over. There's this, this, the desert is dangerous. Uh, it's where evil prowls about. It's, um, it's always encumbered by, a time of testing, you know, so often that like the people of Israel wandered in the desert for what, 40 years, right? So we have that going on. Jesus is uh, fasting and he's in the desert for 40 days. And um, there's just a lot of that kind of stuff going on that is associated with desert. So you get this idea that, wow, you know, we see a little bit of our world and and the, the world around us and our lives as those two guys are clopping down the road in a chariot in the desert, so to speak. And you get this sense that there's danger all around. But here is the Apostle Philip preaching and teaching and the Lord brings joy in the midst of it. So 
it's it's a very valuable text and that's part of our own reflection in procreptics and in, in looking at the text for our lives so yeah i appreciate the thoughts and the questions um let's see do you think philip's sudden departure means anything special i know i've often thought about that like what is going on um with that particular thing it's 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 divine right i mean it's it's beyond the sense of normal that you know it says that the spirit of the lord carried philip away and the eunuch saw him no more so the spirit of the lord carries him away what does that mean you know is that you know does that mean that philip's work is done and so now the lord sends him off um does he teleport <laughs> someplace else and now he's doing doing something else uh you know what exactly does that mean i'm not really sure the answer to that um except that i you know i, I think just practically about the church's life and and my life as a pastor that you know the lord has placed me in a in a in a locale to do his work and then when the work is done, the Lord pushes me on. And, um, and it, it's, it's a strange feeling uh, because you invest so much time, right, into people. I mean, the pastors here at St. John have invested so much time uh, into all of you. And, um, and, you know, we just keep going along until the Lord is ready to move us to the next thing. And um, so, yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, good question. Any other any other thoughts or questions with this or or anything else? The book of Acts is is full of of these kinds of these kinds of things that are just filled with the spiritual. Um So we'll get to some other things in the in the coming weeks. We'll we'll continue to look at the the narratives and get into uh, some some nice things that draw us closer, draw us into the Lord's gifts. All right. Well, I think I'm going to go ahead and go. So uh, I'll see all of you later. Lord's peace. <laughs>